You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. Joining me now is Rose Hunter, a poet whose memoir, Body Shell Girl, is a powerful retelling of her story in verse, and quite a story it is. I was introduced to you via Ellie Marie Diamond, who has been here on the show from Wahinito Rising. Welcome, Rose, to Counterculture. Thanks so much. It's lovely to be here, and I really enjoyed your uh, episode with Ellie Marie as well. Oh, Ellie Marie is wonderful. She's been such a resource, actually. She knows so many fascinating people. And you look like, too, you have an incredible story. So walk us through that. Sure. So I uh, I spent uh, 10 years in the sex industry all up, uh, which was not my intention when I started. I uh, started in the industry in 1997 when I was 25. I had a pretty unhappy existence in Australia for many reasons and I took a um, working holiday visa for Canada without a lot of savings in um, to spare. And I got a job at a Photoshop in Canada uh, initially and then I lost that job uh, through my own incompetence, I have to say. <laughs> but then I was without uh, rent and I needed rent quickly and I wanted to stay in Canada. Coming back to Australia was sort of like uh, death to me, uh, which I could get into, but maybe I'll, uh, yeah, that's going to be a longer story. So, so determined to stay in Canada, determined to pay my rent. Uh, I saw the ads in the paper, uh, no experience necessary, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, cash paid daily, exclamation mark. That that was for a massage parlour. Had an inkling, I think, what a massage parlour might be, but not much of one. Uh, but I went to the interview and um uh, they needed someone straight away, so the interview turned into my first shift. I was amazed that with my desperation, I guess, that I could do it. Now, this wasn't a brothel. It wasn't full-service prostitution. It was what they call happy endings, so it was a nude massage and hand job. I pretty much had no uh, idea that I would be able to do that. I thought I wouldn't be able to do it, but I was really determined and really desperate. So that was how I started off. And the idea was to initially was to pay my rent and just stay in it a couple of months and then go back to uh, some regular employment just to get me out of my hole. How that turned into 10 years is actually the topic of my book um, that was published last year by uh, Spinifex Press. It's a great Australian uh, feminist uh, publisher. They publish a lot of things that the um, uh, mainstream publishers aren't interested in, including critiques of, of the sex industry. So, yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah, a bit no. about my story so far. <laughs> so when you saw that ad, what was the legal situation in Canada at the time around that type of work? So were you actually having to break the law in, to, in order to conduct your job or was that legalised or decriminalised in Canada at that point? Back then, I had very little idea about these issues. This was sort of pre-Googling things for me. <laughs> so I relied on the information that the girls uh, told me at the parlour, you know, uh, which, you know, some of which was reliable and some of which probably wasn't. 
So the situation with uh, massage parlours in Ontario, because the provinces in Canada had different laws, was that they, it was, the situation was that it was technically illegal in the sense that undercover officers could come in and the place could be busted. But Basically, they were looking for people who were running a brothel. So basically full service, not just your happy endings. Mm. So as long as you were just doing your happy endings, you were probably okay. Uh, The story that went around was that if an undercover officer came in, and I did see a few, and you offered full service, then they could take down the whole parlour and everyone in it. So you were sort of a bit scared of what other girls, the mistakes other girls might make. And the mistakes that I might make also, because you also weren't supposed to um, say, oh, yes, the hand jobs included or anything like that. You were just call, call them extras in a very vague sort of manner. But it was difficult to make tips that way. So often you would just have to say exactly what you were offering, you know, mm. um, to make your money for that shift. How many just actual massages did you do? Like, was it what I mean? Did everybody want a happy ending, or did was the cherry on top only for a select few? According to the bosses, the happy ending was included, but you basically didn't want to tell the client that. <laughs> I, I called them clients back in those days, so that's a bit of a slip into my old language. But these days, I would call them sex buyers or sexual service buyers rather than clients, which gives it this respectability that Mm. um, I don't think it has. So technically it was included. Your extras would be a topless massage, a nude massage, and a nude reverse, which is where they could massage you and touch you within reason. But you you often didn't want to present it that way, but that that was the unofficial thing. And I I did work in a lot of (laughs) massage parlors, unfortunately, in Ontario, and they did seem to be all the same in that respect. So once you started, and as you said, with desperation, you you didn't know whether you could do it, but you were in the industry for 10 years. So when was that point where something challenging that you've never done before made way to something normal that then made way to something that became harmful and detrimental? Yeah, thanks for that question because I meant to address that. Yeah, I mean, basically that question is why I wrote the book. I never sort of understood why I had spent 10 years in this industry, exactly how that had happened. So that was my working question when I came to write this book. And it was something after a while that I was very ashamed of and I had a lot of trauma from those years. You know, the the answer that I came up with, so I moved to um, Vancouver in my second year in Canada. Vancouver has different laws to Ontario. British Columbia has different laws to Ontario. I didn't know that when I got there, so I thought I'll just work in a in a massage parlour as before. They didn't really exist there the same way, so I ended up in a brothel, and that's when I did full service for the first time. And that was really, I want to say difficult, but of course it was way more than that. It was really traumatic. A little bit after that, I was raped in a in a brothel. You know, I've come to see that, you know, some feminists say it, it's all rape in brothels because it's all sex that you don't want to have and you wouldn't have unless the, the sex buyer offered you money for it, you know. So I can say that uh, the one uh, that happened in Vancouver there was maybe a violent rape compared to all the unwanted <laughs> mm. stuff that, uh, that went on as well. 
by that stage, I was really traumatised. You know, I certainly don't want to um, erase my personal responsibility there. I shouldn't have got myself in this situation. You know, there were reasons why I did prior trauma, uh, addiction and some other things. However, I do bear some personal responsibility there and I did struggle with that for a long time. But in short, I became very traumatised and and what happens when you're traumatised is it's very difficult to imagine alternate uh, alternate future for yourself. So um, it became very difficult to get out. It became very difficult to imagine that I could ever do anything else to earn money because by this stage I'm 26, 27, and I had never actually held down a job in a significant way in my life that supported me. This was the only thing I'd ever done that had paid my rent. So I was attached to it for that reason. You know, that's a big thing. Mm. (laughs) It was always a struggle for me. Finances were always a struggle for me. And I also thought by that stage, I thought I've been hurt. They've hurt me. Now I'm going to earn off them. Now they're going to pay for that. You know, Uh, that was extremely unuseful way of looking at it because the person who really paid was me over and over again, and I got enough money to uh, to live on. But uh, when I finally did exit the industry in 2008, uh, you know, the things I left with were alcoholism, uh, tranquilizer, addiction, no money, only debt, <laughs> and uh, a heaping of trauma. And uh, the next year, you know, I, I almost died through through that. Abusive relationships were another thing that happened and it all gets linked up into this uh, toxic stew when things uh, start going wrong like that, you know. It really becomes a rolling snowball and, mm. and that's what happened to me. The attitude of sex buyers, That's something that I've spoken to both Ali Marie about and Helen Taylor about, and that seems to have changed. Did you note a change between going from the massage parlour with a happy ending through to a full-service brothel? Was there a quite a distinctive difference to those buyers in terms of expectation, attitude, power dynamic that you saw? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I should mention that after my uh, year in the in the brothel, or it wasn't quite a year, but almost in Vancouver, I did go back to massage parlors once I returned to Ontario, which is where I spent the rest of you know mm-hmm. eight or nine years. And so I I did go back to basically the happy ending structure, but I did out call. Uh, massage so it was just at hotels and stuff but the services were basically the same the the damage necessarily for your psyche would have been done in that you know more so in that year I would have thought yeah and this is the thing like um I think for me definitely brothel work is worse I can say that it's worse than massage parlor work for sure however I don't want to minimize the damage that massage parlor work does as well 
because, I mean, these guys, uh, they they want to get their money's worth, so they're going to grope you as much as they can and they're going to go as far as they can. And I, I've had uh, violent uh, buyers in the parlours and there's usually no one to protect you because the bosses don't want to be there in case the place gets busted. The attitudes of, of the buyers I mean, I find a lot of commonality, really. I think the only difference I would say is not whether it's massage or brothel, but whether it's high-end or low-end, really. That's that's the difference I found. I worked in both because for a while I, I didn't have a, a working visa, which was another stupid thing that I did. Uh, so I worked in some low-end places, and I'm going to say they were worse too, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as you would expect. I mean, it sounds like a stereotype, but it was true. So the buyers were just... Don't get me wrong, there's some horrible, uh, wealthy, educated buyers, many of them, but I did find a, a worse situation in the lower-end places. I think the entitlement all around on the part of the buyer, and I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think we analyse the women so much and I think we should be analysing uh, the buyers. And the same when we have an article on uh, the sex industry in the paper or online, it's always got a woman in a miniskirt and high heels or it's just it's just chopped off that bit of her body to put in the picture. And what I think we should do is show the Johns, show the buyers. And there's a woman in, in Germany, Ellie Arrow, who posted that on her Twitter uh, some time ago, but I sort of keep reposting it regularly because it shows the picture of the buyers and that's who we should be focusing on to end demand, I believe. So uh, the entitlement is on their part is that they've paid for this so uh, they can do whatever they want and they want to get their money's worth. That was my experience of a lot of them. I'm not going to say all of them at all, but a lot of them, yeah. Mm. Well, because the focus on the sex buyer is certainly what the Nordic model concentrates on, from what I understand, and that is showing some success because without the demand, you wouldn't need to have supply. I mean, you talked about how you entered into this from a fiscal point of view, but when you were working, you I'm sure you created camaraderies with other women at work. What were some of the drivers for them? Was it money? Was it addiction? Was it trauma? Or as you said, was it a toxic stew of all of the above? I would say it's always money. I mean, there's no reason to do this if you don't need the money. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe there's like 1% or 0.5% <laughs> of women who might think, oh, this is going to be a sexy time because they think they can actually choose their johns or something weird like that. And I do see that sort of attitude in the media quite often among some women who imagine that this industry is a completely different thing from what it is. They had that whole Julia Roberts, this is going to be a pretty woman type yeah. situation. Yeah. yeah, if it was Richard Gere, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm picking that you didn't come across many Richard Gears in your time. I didn't. I'm not going to say that all the men were awful, though, at all. I mean, there were some really human interactions. I This is why I think education is really important in educating sex buyers of exactly what they're buying, because when you're in this industry, you want to get regulars, particularly if they seem like decent guys, because the more decent guy regulars you have, the less 
oddball, weirdo, dangerous guys you, you have to mix with, right? So it's within your interest to keep these these uh, nicer, you know, decent regulars. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you present it as something that you love doing. You love doing this, right? Because that's what they want to hear. They're not going to become a regular of yours if, you, if you're unenthusiastic or tell them, I'm just doing this for the money, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. or and I'm I mean, and- or any of that. Right. And what's probably drawing them there is either driving loneliness or really dysfunctional relationships at home. So the last thing they want is to unpack what's already making them unhappy, I'm sure. It can be. I mean, it's definitely one reason, you know, uh, and it is a lonely society that, that we have. And so I think those men, some of them, <laughs> if they understood the context of this and they understood that Oh, actually, you know, uh, she's she's pretending. I mean, people do believe what they want to believe, what's convenient for them to believe often, you know, and I've done it myself for sure. So I think some of the nicer men who are sex buyers are in that category of just having the blinkers on, which we can all do at times, and it's working for me nicely. So I just want to, you know, keep my belief in this and that it's not going to harm her it's going to help her get ahead in life and and whatever they're telling themselves that's why I think education and focusing on on the men is important so you left in 2008 where to from there for you so my story is uh not typical in in well, I don't know what's typical, actually, so I shouldn't say that. But uh, so I actually had a, a uh, Bachelor of Arts degree before I got in the industry because I got in the industry at 25. Uh, so I used that Bachelor of Arts uh, degree to get a job teaching in Mexico, which was close to where I was in Canada at the time. I'd just been to Mexico briefly and fell in love with it and thought, you know, uh, I want to live here. And um, I finally, finally made the decision to leave um, to leave Toronto because I wanted to burn all the bridges. I thought if I wanted to quit, I wanted to get out of the industry, and I thought if I get out of the industry and stay in Toronto, it's too easy to go back as soon as my other jobs fail or I screw them up or something like that. So I thought I'll just burn that bridge completely, go to a different country. I'm, I'm probably, I have no idea how this works in Mexico and probably very little interest in trying to find out. So I got a job teaching uh, English at a school in Mexico. So I went uh, there and I did that for a few months. By that time, my, well, uh, for, for many years by then, my alcoholism was pretty severe. And so I messed up that job. Uh, I left that job in an alcoholic blackout just got on a bus and went to a different part of Mexico. Uh, If you have any listeners who are alcoholics, they might be able to relate to that, what seems like bizarre behaviour to most people. Uh, But we do sometimes do that sort of thing. And then I, the closest place was uh, Puerto Vallarta. I was in Guadalajara and uh, immediately got in an abusive relationship with another alcoholic, uh, entered into a really horribly abusive relationship and which uh, eventually because of the damage that I suffered there uh, I finally showed up on the doorsteps of our AA Alcoholics Anonymous and so that's uh, sort of when my very very slow recovery started 
getting out of the industry was one thing, but it was getting actually, out of the toxicity that got you there in the first place was an entirely different thing. Mm. Yeah, they, as they say, like you can escape the situation, but you, you're still yourself is <laughs> still mm. going to be there afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And alcoholism, having I mean, I've known some alcoholics, and it seems incredibly difficult. And I think it's a difficult to leave, but the social acceptance of the substance to begin with, it's not looked upon socially it doesn't have the same stigmas as other forms of addiction and it can be very very difficult to get that help so the fact that you were able to as you said stumble into AA to start that journey must we do you look back now and you think to yourself well you know where would I be if I hadn't walked into that first meeting Absolutely. I think that all the time. Uh, I love the program. I, I do have some criticisms of it as well. But overall, I, I love it. And uh, the individuals in it, I love uh, in particular. And uh, one of them definitely saved my life. Uh, and finding AA definitely saved my life. I mean, um, the, uh, the the wish that I had have would be that I, I could have discovered that earlier. Because uh, I think while that was going on, it was really hard to get out of the industry. And of course, what I told myself when I was in the industry regarding alcohol was, well, I need it to go to these calls to go by that stage, it was massage out call to put on the performance to put on the act. There's no way I could do this without alcohol. Harder to tell on radio, but I am a, a very shy, sort of quiet person, uh, which is another stereotype people think we aren't but uh, from my experience of the other other women uh, there's a lot of us who are quiet and shy we do it for the money not because we're extroverts <laughs> yeah that was the reason for the for the alcohol I, I told myself all those years I thought as soon as I quit this industry I will quit the alcohol because I won't need it anymore that's what I thought so to my surprise I quit the industry and it actually got worse the alcohol wow. actually got worse because I hadn't dealt with any of the trauma of, of the industry at all and I had it in mind that I would just forget everything that had happened in those 10 years, they're over, right? I'm just going to move on. <laughs> this is what I thought back then. I sort of had this attitude probably uh, because of the industry. I mean, stuff happens, horrible stuff happens, and you dust yourself off and you go see the next buyer, you know. Uh, it It promotes a... For those of us who stay in it, a toughness like that. And so I thought, well, you know, that's what I'll do. I'll just forget all this. New life. Here we go. Yeah, to, to my to my huge surprise, I had a raft of other problems to deal with. <laughs> yeah. So where does poetry fit into the mix? Yeah, so I always had a, well, not always, but uh, I had an interest in writing, uh, particularly I'd say uh, since around about I, I, when I started uh, in the industry, I had a big interest in reading before that. I think all writers have to have that and I did, my BA was in English, although my mostly focused in on film studies, cultural studies, but I had always been a big reader. So I continued reading, reading, reading over the years in, in parlours, etc. because <laughs> there's a lot of hours in the waiting rooms there. So I started writing journal entries. I never had the confidence to write myself. 
I just didn't think that that was something I was allowed to do. I have very, very low self-esteem. That's another part of my story, a lot of self-loathing, having been told I was stupid and all these other things. So I I was a reader but not a writer because I didn't think I would. I was allowed. Um, but I started writing journals, I think, to cope with some of the stuff that was going on in the industry. That was my outlet was I would write it all down, write it all down. And I, I wrote, um, yeah, I, I filled up steno notepad after steno notepad in those days, longhand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually remember the exact moment I was walking, I think it was was on Church Street in <laughs> Toronto and downtown. And uh, I was thinking about a journal entry I'd written and uh, I thought, you know, those journal entry, that journal entry, it's like one of those short stories that you like reading. And then I thought, I could probably turn that into a short story. And really, that's the moment when I thought, oh, I'd like to do that. So I started off writing short stories, actually, not poetry. Uh, I love the form. I love short stories. So I sort of converted journal (laughs) entries into short stories and then slowly developed an interest in poetry and started writing poetry really when I was, I started writing poetry sort of in a very sporadic form earlier, but started writing more of it really when I got to Mexico. And that's where my interest in poetry grew and connected with other people online who were doing it, which was a really important thing for me because I didn't come up with any writing mentors or programs or funding or any of that. It was it was me within a on blogger in those days with mm-hmm. other writers who were publishing on bloggers and we used to read each other's blogs and poems in very small online journals before that was really popular. And so yeah, that's that's how it happened. The community was a big part of it, being able to have those other poets that I really never met in person but online. So you've now actually published a number of books. So how did you manage to get that connection to be able to publish and to actually get your work out there to a wider audience? How did that sort of manifest? Well, I did it very poorly (laughs) in the start because I had no idea what I was doing. Not that I I have a really great idea now, but I've certainly learned a lot of things through making a lot of mistakes. The the first book that happened happened via one of those uh, blogger people who started a uh, small press because a very DIY kind of DIY, that's the expression, isn't it, Mm. Um, (laughs) community. And so he just liked my stuff, so he asked if he could publish it as a book, and I went, oh, okay. In retrospect, some of that work, if I was mentoring me (laughs) from the position now, I would have said, yeah, great, but develop that a little bit more, you know, before before you get it out there. Take some more time, uh, develop a bit more as a poet before publishing that. But obviously there, there were really good aspects to it as well. Uh, just sort of in in the very small press arena for for some years, and I was in Mexico this whole time, so I didn't do much in Australia. It was all um, small publishers in the US mostly. And then I got a book published by Five Islands Press in Australia uh, that was published in 2017. They were an excellent Australian poetry publishing house. Unfortunately, they've gone under. <laughs> 
uh, now, uh, but they really published some really good stuff. So that was a really good thing for me. And I, I got that publication simply through their open reading period, no connections. Uh, I just submitted a manuscript to an, to an open reading period they had each year. Regarding the, the book, the reason why I'm here today, Body Shell Girl, about this industry, when I started writing the book, I wasn't sure what attitude it was going to take because I still had to process a lot of stuff that had happened in this industry. And, you know, if I'd understood it all, I wouldn't have written the book, you know. So the book, the writing of the book was my way of sorting through what I thought about that. And when I realised, you know, how negative <laughs> the industry had been for me, I realised it had not been positive, but uh, I didn't realise the extent to which it was it was bad. Uh, when I saw the book was going in that direction and started to get a bit more consciousness about these issues by reading some other spin effects books, actually, among among other books about this, including Sheila Jeffrey's mm -hmm. book, The Idea of Prostitution, that we were talking about before today, uh, before we started chatting here. Yeah, I really started gaining a consciousness of that that I had not had at the time. At the time, it was all my fault and I just simply should have done better in life and I didn't see how structures had, uh, social structures had participated in the difficulties that I'd had and the trauma that I'd experienced. I really took it on all myself. So the book was starting to get an idea of that and when I realised that, I queried Spin Effects Press because I knew they had published that sort of stuff because I had read their books before. Mm. So that's, uh, yeah, that's a long answer to your question. No, so, so you wrote the book. You've come, you obviously have come back to Australia. So what prompted you to go from Mexico, which you obviously is where you found sobriety, Yeah. and what brought you home? Yeah, I do love Mexico and I feel like it's my heart home. Uh, I'm here at the moment. I'm doing a PhD in creative writing, uh, which is amazing, something I definitely couldn't have done in my alcoholic years or in my industry years. And uh, so that's, I think that's the main reason why I'm back in Australia now is uh, to to complete that. So now through the sober lens and with the lens of time and being back in Australia too, what are some of your thoughts just casting your eye across like even here in New Zealand and the fact that you know Ali Marie, we've had decrim here in this country now for 20 years. What are some of the comparisons and observations you have between a society where it is still criminal versus decrim, positives, negatives, and where the industry appears to be moving now from the time it was that you were in it in the late 90s and early noughties? I have to say at the outset, legal aspects are not my forte, but I can, uh, yeah, Ali Marie is much sharper on this than I am. But I can say what I've observed, uh, which is I think, I mean, I think it's really tragic, uh, New Zealand and Australia and the way we're, we're going here. In Canada, I understand they adopted the Nordic model, but what I've heard is it's a watered-down Nordic model. That's just what I've heard. Obviously, I have no experience of it, and I think that happened in around 2013 or so, uh, which was after I left the industry. Um, mostly what I can observe is through comparing Ontario and British Columbia. In British Columbia, uh, in, in Ontario, um, I believe brothels were entirely illegal. I mean, that's why there were undercovers coming in, checking that we weren't doing brothel activities in a parlour, right? Whereas Vancouver, 
they were very visible. They had the signs out. You could walk past and see them. I remember uh, one of the the brothels I worked in initially, which was quite a high-end brothel because I still had my visa. We all used to be out on the the side balcony in our evening gowns at 10 a.m. or whenever it was smoking, you know, and it was just it was just really visible street prostitution, very visible there. A lot of poverty back then in Vancouver. It was it was sort of the known to be the worst for that. So there was a lot of visible prostitution there. And as I mentioned, I, I my experience was trying to work in Vancouver is I had way less choice. If I wanted to be in the sex industry. I would have to be in a brothel. I couldn't do my happy ending, (laughs) you know, lesser harm. I'm going to say that's lesser harm. I wasn't able to do that where uh, where the brothels were either decrim or legalised. I'd have to look it up. You'd have to look up, you know, the BC Vancouver laws in 1999, which was when I was there, Mm. (laughs) to find that out. But my impression was uh, very illegal in Ontario and uh, either legal or decrim in in uh, Vancouver, and Vancouver was way worse in terms of uh, in terms of working. Yeah, that's the main conclusion I can draw yeah. from my own personal experience. Yeah, are you doing any work now in, in that space in terms of advocacy for those wanting to either leave the space or support with those who are needing, whether it be addiction or trauma? to help move on or you're using that vehicle through your writing? So I have done some activist activities and I'm really interested in that. Like there's the WEEP uh, conference that we had recently in Brisbane, that's Women Ending Exploitation by Prostitution, uh, which is a really great organisation. Mostly uh, I focus on telling my story and, as mentioned, let Ali Marie and other people uh, deal more with the legal aspects what I'm most interested in in terms of sharing my story is sharing what I would have wanted to hear back then from someone. Like the messages I got from the media and whatnot back then were uh, sex workers empowering. And I was thinking, hmm, that's not really the reality I'm seeing in front of me. And then I, because I, I just had no self-esteem and a bunch of other issues, I thought, well, it's probably because I'm doing it wrong. Like I'm just not cool for starters. And back then I really wanted to be cool as well. <laughs> I'm not cool. I'm wrong. These people are telling me it's this thing and it, this empowering thing and it probably could be. So why don't I try and do that? And so so I really tried to uh, do that. I was unable to see that it was sexy and empowering. So I thought, well, the next best thing is I'll pretend I think it's sexy and empowering, <laughs> you know. And, uh, you know, and added to that, no one really wants to, if you're doing something horrible, you really don't want to admit the horribleness that it is because then you have to face it and the next logical thing would be you have to try and get out and if you have no idea how to get out, that's a really demoralising experience. So it's another one of those believing what we, we want to believe situations and I think there's a lot going on in the industry like that, um, including the some of the buyers, as mentioned. I didn't have a lot of consciousness about what was going on with me. And so when I hear people say, well, I have a friend who's in the industry and she thinks it's fine, she doesn't have a problem with it, I have to say, look, 
I don't know what the reality is with your friend. I'm not her. But I can tell you that if you had asked me when I was in the industry, hey, what's it like? I would have said it's fine. I would have said it's a job like any other, you know. And you say that often enough and you do start to believe it, which is why for me it took years to see the reality of what had gone on. And and this is common to abuse survivors of all descriptions, domestic abuse, child abuse. We don't want to see it. And it's so hard to see. So I guess that's where I think I can contribute is telling my story of coming through that and telling my story of coming through into consciousness that this isn't okay. You know, you deserve better. We all do. Uh, This isn't how women should be treated. This isn't what men should think that they can treat women this way. This is is not uh, promoting our humanity. This is... um, stunting it so all those sorts of things is more the message I have in terms of psychology and and uh general trends yeah Mm. well it's been an incredible journey and thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today uh the book of course is called body shell girl it's available from spinifex press we will make sure that we have a link to that book if you want to order and As Rose mentioned, uh, Professor Sheila Jeffries, who I interviewed here several months ago, all of her body of work is also available there. And of course, Ellie Marie Diamond, who I've interviewed as well from Waiheni Toa Rising. So there's plenty of information available. If you want to hear more interviews in and around this topic, just go to the RCR app, go to my counterculture page, and then look at replays and you'll be able to find and download and play all of those from there. Rose, thank you so much for your time today. It is um, it's absolutely fascinating and I can't wait to get a copy of the book and read it. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for your really wonderful questions. That was great. Oh, you're most, most welcome. Don't disappear. More great content here to come with Counterculture. Marty, of course, will be back where we will chew over the, all the shenanigans and politics this week. And hopefully we've got some time for Woke News of the Week here on Reality Check Radio. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.